Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whatever time you're listening or wherever you're listening from. Welcome along to a blank canvas. I'm Cameron Rawson, and this is episode 37 with Ali McRae. How are you doing? I hope you're feeling good. In this episode, I chat with music manager, digital development producer, podcaster, and ex-BBC Radio 1 DJ, Ali McRae. We speak about his career today, music management, in which he manages a singer-songwriter called Old Sea Brigade, podcasting in which he speaks with successful music managers. Think Dua Lipa's manager, think Arlo Parks' manager, previously hosting BBC Introducing on Radio 1, currently working at Channel 4, and much more. This was a brilliant episode. Ali is a fantastic guy. He's done everything. He knows everyone. He's so, so talented. It was so much fun to talk to him. So much fun to talk to him. Uh, feel free to follow our socials at a blank canvas pod on Insta, a blank canvas pod on Facebook, and a blank canvas pod.com for our website. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do me a solid and hit that five star review button. And on Spotify, click follow. Thank you very much. This episode was amazing. This is episode 37 with Ali McRae. Welcome, Welcome to a blank canvas with Cameron Rawson. Cameron Rawson. So I don't know where to begin. You've done so much uh, and I've got so much to ask you about every caveat of what you've done and do. <laughs> but am I right in saying either you are now or you have been a radio presenter, band manager uh, or music uh, music manager, podcast host, producer of many forms and have been involved with, well, uh, quite a long list of media companies. Yes, that's that. That's pretty much summed it up. Yeah, that's that, that's my life. What is the phrase? Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> that's me. Um, well, so, well, I mean, I'd say you're very good at a lot of what you do. Um, <laughs> so before we get into each part, uh, is it safe to say well, it's safe to say you have had a fair few of jobs within media and music? Is this something you've always wanted to do when you were when you were uh, like a really young Ali McRae? Was this something you dreamt of doing? Was it something specific? Uh, I think when I was really young, there is definitely photos of me pretending to have a radio show. Um, and I guess as I grew older through my teenage years, I kind of fell into music. I come from a very musical family. Uh, we were in like a family Cayley band. So, you know, like Scottish country. Folk oh, wow, music. nice. That's um, cool. So that was, I guess, where I got the performative bug. My dad did loads of different jobs. He was a librarian, but also had a Cayley band, but was also a children's entertainer. Did kind of like <laughs> Punch and Judy puppet shows. Um, cool. My brother's incredibly talented uh, as a composer and musician. So yeah, very creative family. So I think I was always going to do something like this. But definitely as I got older, I found out I had significantly less skill than actually making music. So ended up talking about it a lot and working with it. And yeah, found that talking was maybe my talent more than anything else. Uh, so let's start with the, the music management aspect. Because um, mm -hmm. I think it's the best way of doing it is sort of <laughs> talking about each kind of thing you do and i found it difficult to what order to put it in so i just kind of went for it um so let's start with the music management aspect yes. a lot of people will uh will not really know or understand what a manager does i mean obviously there's like a general manager in a bar or a restaurant or a <laughs> you know a store but they'll have no idea or a, at least a lot of people won't have any idea of what a, a manager does in the music industry so could you give us a bit of like a sort of, you don't have to go day-to-day -day specific, but kind of um, the general things a manager would do, please? 
Well, it's interesting because every manager is really different um, in their approach and what their skill set is. But for me, it's about being a lot of different things, I guess. You've got to be a champion for that artist. You've got to be a sort of parental figure for that artist within the industry. <laughs> You've to got to be a counsellor. <laughs> well, every decision you make together, you've just right. got to make sure you've kind of thought it through. And it's weird because it is your career, yes, in many ways, but it's much more their career. If you're a manager, there is a chance that you will pick up other artists or you might have a roster of artists, but you're helping them make the decisions rather than just making the decisions for them, I find. So there's a bit of like, you know, football manager coaching and getting them up, getting their confidence up, making them feel good. There's sometimes a bit of berating if they're not doing things as well as they could be. Um, there is a lot of maybe talking down, not talking down ideas, but um, maybe pointing out that that idea might not be the best thing to do right now. Um, there's relationship management. There's being a buffer between them and all the different people you've got to work with in music, be that a record label, a publisher, a PR, an accountant, a lawyer. You've kind of got to be a filter between the artist and that person because sometimes if you just left the artist or the partner to just talk directly to each other it might not be the best if it's a more fractured <laughs> situation so you're a bit of a mediator sometimes um you have to be constantly pushing the artist to not do things that they wouldn't normally do but to help them find the best version of themselves if that makes sense so you know they've written a new song and they want to call it something and you're like, oh, you know, Ed Sheeran's got a song named that. Maybe just change the, the word of that. That was a bad example. I uh, don't know why I said that. But yeah. I, I, think, I, get the, I get the gist now, yeah. Yeah, you've got to be a lot of different things all at the same time, um, which is probably why I found it quite easy to slot into seeing that I have lots of different jobs and wear how does different someone, hats. <laughs> how does someone kind of uh, get into that then? Because obviously, as you've said, you've got to do a ton of different stuff. I mean, I guess once you've managed you know, your first act, you can kind of use that as a reference point. But let's say, for example, tomorrow I decided I wanted to, obviously it's not, you know, it's not easy, which is why I'm asking, but let's say tomorrow I wanted to become uh, a manager of, of an artist or a band. Uh -huh. How would I go about doing that? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because I think it's not about being a good or bad manager or being an experienced manager. It's about the relationship with the artist. So number one, you'd be wanting to find an artist that you love, you believe in, and that you will not get bored screaming about, that you get excited when they send you a demo, um, that you are totally buzzing when you get to see them live. Remember when that was a thing. So there's <laughs> got to be that love and that passion and that understanding of where they want to be. So finding an artist is obviously the first thing. But I think what's more interesting, um, I spent years working with lots of younger artists, um, and, you know, I've lived in Glasgow for years, so there's a huge, amazing sort of community of musicians and, and music industry as well. And you kind of hear about, you know, bands falling out and then forming new bands or someone goes solo and all those different things. And I think the most interesting thing about finding or becoming a manager is about finding the right artist at the right time and finding the right manager at the right time. Because it might be that if you're starting off, you've got no links with a wider music industry. You've got absolutely nobody hyping you. You don't know anyone at the local uni radio station or you don't know anyone at the local sort of indie band magazine or whatever, if, if that's the kind of music yeah, you're making. Yeah. And you just need someone to talk. You don't, they don't need to be a super experienced manager. 
at the start of a of development of an artist putting out your first couple of tracks, your first EP, whatever, you don't need someone who manages the 1975. So you so need let someone. Me ask. Yeah. Sorry, so, so let, let me ask. So um, let's say, for example, I've heard, uh, you might have seen TV shows or movies or even in real life where yeah. um, an artist who is massive, yep. you know, you find out that their manager doesn't manage anybody else. And the only person they've managed is that person because they were childhood friends yeah. and they've had no experience. I can't even think of any examples off the top of my head right now. <laughs> but so that, that, that can actually be a viable thing then. If it's, you know, because if someone has got a pre-established relationship, um, a fr friendship can transition into manage them, managing De them. Oh, definitely. I think some of the greatest management partnerships are those long-standing trusted friends because at the heart of it, you are maybe as a manager, a sounding board to run everything by. Because being an artist, so if you're talking about a solo artist or a, a rapper or MC or DJ producer, someone who's operating on their own, that is an incredibly lonely, terrifying thing, making every decision about your business and about your creativity alone. So on one hand, you've got to be, like, you, you probably want a manager to just go, is this a good idea? Yeah, let's do it. And at least you've got someone to bounce ideas off. If it's managing a band, then you're kind of doing that for the entity of the band, but also for the individuals and mediating between those people. So I, th I think it's, if you're an artist and you absolutely hate social media and you're putting out tracks, but and you don't have a manager, but you've got a friend who's really good at social media, they're organized, they, they always say funny things on Twitter or whatever, then maybe that person comes on as, quote unquote your manager but what they're really doing is nailing the social media for you getting all your photos getting videos set up and doing that sort of thing they might have no experience as a manager they might know nothing about the music industry but they could be very useful to you at that stage um and that 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 could be step one or maybe there's someone that's quite well known in the local music scene for doing something else they might be a tour manager they might be the person that does the door at the local venue and they're known so actually what you need is to be known in the local music scene. So having someone that's really good at that and really good at networking, if you're terrible at it as an artist, then that's quite a good jump off point. And then that person grows with you because whenever an opportunity comes in or a gig's offered or an agent wants to get to know you, then you're both doing that together. And then you can go away. And because you've lived through every single battle together, the next discussion or the next person that comes up, you kind of start to learn how they're going to think and how they're going to feel about those. So it's more about finding a partnership for that moment. And it's easy to think, oh, I want this manager to be with me for all time. But that might not happen, you know? Um, I suitable time to plug my podcast. I've got a podcast called How Did You Manage That? Which is We're going to talk about, about that as well. Good. We'll talk about it. Yeah, don't worry <laughs> I'm about jumping that. ahead too soon. But that, the, the first person we interviewed for that podcast was Jamie Oborn, who manages the 1975, 19, yeah, yeah. who runs Dirty Hit Records. Um, and he's been with the 1975 since day dot when nobody cared about them. And he's got the amazing story in our first ever episode years ago when he was just saying that not a single record label, big or small, would entertain the 1975. Or they were called something else then. And I think it was like 13 or 14 different rejections with wow. the same song. I think the song might have been sex. Don't quote me on that. But it was like a song that is now really famous and just yeah, turned yeah. down. But he just stuck with them. Ultimate belief. And he's still there. God knows how many festival headlines and sold out stadium shows later because they've been through that journey. That is an idealistic thing to have happened, but not every management journey is like that. It's, it, it's so different. And my own management journey was really weird because I was working as a Radio 1 DJ living in Glasgow, 
And I started working with a band called Prides, but they weren't called Prides at the time. They had a record deal, but they had no manager. They had nobody working at the record label interested in them because their previous manager had left. And they were just kind of floating in this weird space, but they had a record deal. And what they needed was someone that knew quite a lot of people in media that was really passionate about the music that we're making. And that just so happened to be me because I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I was useless and I still consider myself useless in the kind of E&R or songwriting side of management because I would never tell an artist how to write a song because I, I don't have that talent. I don't know how to write sure, lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you get lots of other managers that will pour over the, 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 the mix and the master and the, oh, we should change that middle eight. And, and that, but that's not me. And that's never been me, but that was my entry into management because I was at an interesting stage in my life as a freelancer. I was DJing, I was around the country, I was traveling to music festivals, I was trying, traveling to industry music festivals. I had zero management experience or, or, or um, you know, I'd not done it at college or anything like that. So let me pick up on a few things. Yeah. Um, so cause I've been making note of a few things. Uh, firstly, Prides, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Prides. Oh, I've, I've listened you. to their Thank music you. for a long time. Um, so out of I. the blue, out of the is it out of the yeah out of the blue is uh, on one of my playlists for running actually because I love the uh, oh nice it was on yeah, FIFA sixteen I think yes it was, it was. Yeah, yeah of course yeah, yeah that was. was a that was a big moment you know <laughs> I bet um so firstly you're talking about um uh, independent artists so yes. I had Lauren Aquilina um, oh, on my she's she's sat uh, well no she's is she, no she's not sign i don't think i can't remember anyway but she was referring to orla gartland in the yes. episode um and orla isn't sign at all and she was telling me how because uh, orla and lauren live together mm-hmm. um and orla doesn't have a manager everything's just her so she deals with uh, the finances booking crew for music videos booking yeah. studio time whilst be- like all this stuff whilst being a musician and a creative at the same time so she's That's writing amazing. and also performing i mean it's mind blowing, and also obviously mm-hmm. doing her own social like is everything. All these different things that you know you don't have no idea that she yeah. does. She oh. does, which is just mind blowing. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't. I, and when 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 uh, when someone's trying to pursue music, um, you know, this is why I, I like talking to people like yourself because they sort of you, you open the door to sort of explaining what the industry is actually about and how uh, it's not just sort of you know. You make a song, you get signed, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're in the top 40 charts, you know, this kind of, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not how it works. Um, and also an, a question that I've, I've got for you, cause I've had a conversation with several musicians in the past about, um, how artists manage their social media yes. and whether, whether labels or management will get somebody to potentially help, um, bring out the personality of that musician. Essentially do some, uh, labels or management get, writers involved to try and be a bit more funny because obviously that's a good question lewis capaldi obviously his his social media was top you know his personality was massive and i imagine it probably helped sell a lot of don't get me wrong his music is incredible but i imagine it also aided um a new market 100 percent. i think lewis would be like he would be the first to admit that it's his music it's the combination of his music and his personality and the opportunities and the timing that all combined. It wasn't one of those things. But yeah, if if another artist had released those songs, they would not be as famous. Uh, categorically. Um, and definitely, just to clarify, I've never actually heard of anyone write, doing that, hiring a writer. I wouldn't be surprised. Definitely, Lewis, that all comes out of his brain by absolute... Oh, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I mean, he's, I wasn't saying it for him. I wasn't yeah. saying he was because... 
Um, you know, he, he's. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know Ryan actually, Ryan Walter yep. Walters, who because um, he in, initially managed Lauren years ago. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's just it's just an interesting thing about how because uh, the the state of play for social media with bands. I mean, there's so much I can ask you about music and the industry. So another another good question would be, um, social media is such uh, a power in the music industry now more than it's ever been. Do you think it's a it's it's good? Do you think it's bad? Is it a toxic place with you know how 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 musicians have to rely so heavily and they have to be good at their own marketing more than ever before? Um and a bit of a sort of branch off on that with how easy it is to um sort of create music now. Uh-huh. Um do you think it's becoming oversaturated or do you think it's great that people can make music so easily? Um, and again, sorry, there's one more. This is thing, good. I'm keeping, string, I'm keeping check. Um, one more string to that bow is, um, is it easier or harder than ever for someone's music to get recognition? Okay, right. So let's talk about the social media thing first. It's the biggest bane of, of my life in management because it's such a difficult thing. Like, I... If I was looking in an optimistic way about it, I'd go, right, social media is this incredible chance for you to build and cultivate and directly speak to an audience that 20 years ago didn't exist. It's incredible. You could start a little bit, you know, put your first song out, get the people you know, your friends and family to talk about it. That could then amplify. Then all these other people could start to like it. And before you know it, you're in a Jerry Cinnamon situation where with no manager, no label, all that kind of story, you've sold out a stadium in Scotland by just this passionate like following, appearing, and everybody's sort of hanging on your every word. But that doesn't happen very often. And not every artist wants to be on social media all the time. Like Very few artists do that I know, but they almost have to. So I think what's, what's negative about, is, about it is that feeling and that need to just constantly be churning out content and the only reason you're doing that is to satisfy the algorithms because if you don't use twitter that much if you don't use instagram that much the times you do post it will be harder to reach your audience just because that's the social media that's the trap they're trying to get you in they want you on that app all the time um which comes down to a really boring solution of you need to be organized and if you're doing that yourself is anything. If you're running a podcast, as you'll know, if you're a radio presenter, if you're a musician, um, whatever, if you're wanting to be appearing in your audiences and fans' minds regularly, you need to be like, okay, like, what are we going to do? Three or four Instagram posts a week. We'll do two Facebook posts a week. We'll do one live stream a month and we'll do one Q&A a month. Right. And then you're basically just building a content calendar. That is stage one. And it's so dull. It's so boring. And that's when I go back to, if you're a young artist, it's not necessarily about finding a, a, a manager. It's about finding someone that will help you with that if you're not like Orla Garland and just do it all yourself. So it's someone that can help you go, right, we need a photo for Tuesday when we're going to talk about Oof. your playlist you've got. We're going to talk about Thursday. And this is not creative. This is not, well, it can be very creative, but this is not what, the rock and roll dream you're still in your dull. teenager. It does it's sound really dull. dull. Um, but the reason I, 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 I'm going into so much detail about the boredom of doing a spreadsheet is because if you're not comfortable with social media and you're not 
you don't want to be on it all day because this is without even touching on the mental health stress of scrolling all day. Sure. If you can yep. separate that, it takes like an hour at most on a Sunday afternoon to look at that content calendar, go, what am I going to post? Put it all in a folder and then each day just look at it for five minutes, post it and leave. If you hated social media as an artist, that is achievable without losing your mind. It's totally achievable. If you have the finances to have a decent phone with a good camera on it, you can do all of those things. Do you think it's possible, uh, I know I've asked someone to deal with this, but do you think it's possible to be successful without social media nowadays? Um, I think it's possible to be successful without being on it all the time. Um, and I think the key thing is not about the number of followers you've got, it's the engagement you're getting with those followers. And that's yeah, something I speak sense. to uh, the artist manager at the moment, OT Brigade, about a lot, that it's, it's more about how are you connecting with those people and popping up in their lives a couple of times a week, which is a weird way of looking at it. But that is what's going to, if you're scrolling through Instagram, on, on the bus, or, or say you're, you've just woken up and getting ready, you're scrolling through Instagram and you see a photo of Old Sea Brigade from last night and you follow them on Spotify or you listen to them on regularly on your playlist, probably the next time you go to Spotify, you're going to click them because you've seen them, you've been reminded of them and that's a nice little reminder. So there's a tangible reason to do that. But it's more, and this is getting super into music management theory of, <laughs> I'm going to sound so business and so wanky here, but positioning of an artist. Um, this is an amazing, like using social media carefully to be like, this is the kind of artist I am. And the whole damn thing comes down to authenticity. It comes down to you being able to translate who you are as a person to potential fans so that they don't just hear that lovely song. As you said with Lewis, they think about the song, but they think about you as someone they want to follow. And Again, that's a whole other conversation of the cult of celebrity and the followers <laughs> that Lewis has got because he is a celeb. He's hilarious. He's relatable. He is. He, everything just conspired at the right time for Lewis. He's just your mate down the road, isn't he? He is. That's exactly it. And that's why. And it was it was interesting watching that happen because I remember going to see him when he was just starting out in Scotland, and he was nowhere near as confident as he is now. But it's that there's that thing of confidence breeding confidence. So then. He'd maybe do a few jokey, I bet when he was starting out, he'd do a few jokey, silly Instagram stories and Snapchats and he'd get good reaction. So then of course he's going to do it more. And of course he's going to do it more. And then he just, that confidence builds. If you're not that type of artist, good God, do not try and be like Lewis Capaldi. Because <laughs> people, you it'll be shit. B, everyone will see through it. And it's just, you're not selling that thing. And I think that's with, with Old Sea Brigade, who, who I manage, he makes sort of alternative folksy acoustic music. Um, but it's way more down the line of Bon Iver and the National and, and, and that kind of Manchester Orchestra, that kind of world. But his tone online is not that. And he, I think his instant thing when I go, oh, you need to post loads, it's more saying, oh, I want you to be like Lewis Capaldi. It's like, no, I, I absolutely don't. I want you to be more like Ben Howard, who rarely tweets and posts. <laughs> um, but then we've got the difficulty of the record label going, Right, well, we need context, we need to we need to promote the album and we need to try and promote vinyl sales and all that stuff. So you've got to find that balance and find that tone. And uh, over the I've been working. Do you think with fans ben, sorry, do you think fans can see through it then when someone's not being themselves, when they're being fake? I don't think it's even seen through it. I just think people won't engage. And right. just scroll past it or unfollow. Because you just go, Well, that's I don't care about that fake person. But if you've listened to a song and really fallen in love with an artist. The thing that I've started to say to Ben, who is OT Brigade, is like, just just share stuff you like. 
because we know his audience is a bit older. His audience, I'm probably his target audience. I'm a 33-year-old uh, middle-class male who likes indie bands. I'm right fucking there. I'm, <laughs> I'm spot on for it. So we know that audience is a lot more discerning. So Ben sharing uh, documentaries he's watched, sharing other albums he likes, sharing um, podcasts he's listened to, things like that. That's it's not it's not breaking any innovation records for content creation, but it's him. But, but it's him because then because yeah. it's, it's the same guy I know. And there was a long period of time where he would text me loads of albums and text me loads of podcasts. I was like, dude, just put this in social media, and that's your <laughs> social media problem solved. <laughs> but it's difficult because an artist is trying to present their art to the world, and that some artists want that to have a bit of mystique. And I think what's genuine what i find the best advice for artists is is what would you what what do you like from the people you follow on social media when you follow an artist what do you like do you like those moody sultry photos or do you like the funny jokey ones and be led by that so don't make anything that you wouldn't like yourself if that makes sense that's the yeah, key that's the best sense. way to be authentic i think and there ends my really rambly ted talk on social media and musicians um, no, that's the, the, can it make or break answer. i don't know i don't know the uh, answer to that <laughs> I wish well I did. just to remind you one of the other ones is, is just do you think it's uh easier or hard harder than ever before to be recognized um there's obviously so much music that is it's so easy to make music now i'm not saying people make everyone makes great music but it's so mm -hmm. easy to make music as a musician is it the easiest it's ever been to be recognized or the hardest it's ever been because it's a weird a weird sort of irony of yes it's easy to make music but then everybody else is also making music yeah i think i think you're right i think it's less so the competition because i think the competition has always been there um okay it's easier i would say there's maybe a lot more uh dance electronic acts than there were before you know that 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 Course, yeah. Is a lane that was kind of completely cordoned off by gatekeepers at really cool dance labels or DJs um who were playing out live. That that was kind of cornered, but now that is so open. Everybody is garage band to do that. Doesn't mean everybody's <laughs> good at it. And I do fully believe that when a song is good, I think like so I presented a show on Radio One BBC introducing for years. I still actively listen to different BBC introducing shows because I love it. It's, a, it's an amazing ground of young artists. And the biggest thing is still to this day, I think there's a lot of artists who are almost like, they're at this early stage. They maybe have a manager, they maybe don't. They're still kind of hoping they get a record deal. And with that in mind, I see a lot of them sometimes like holding back their music and not releasing it. And no record label is going to go near an artist these days until they have got a proven following. That's the big thing that's changed. I think that maybe even as soon as eight years ago, artists could have got signed by having one or two really, really, really good demos and a bit of buzz about them locally. But now you've got to be up a good number of followers, engaged followers. You've got to have a couple of good tracks performing well on streaming. You've got to have a good idea of who you are as an artist which you only really get by releasing music and doing creative things yourself, you know? And I guess the sweet spot is if you just start releasing music, I kind of, and I say this carefully because it's not right for every act. Some acts are always going to aim for the album and I'm doing that in air quotes. You know, the idea of releasing a vinyl and all that stuff. But really, as most people know, I kind of look at streaming and releasing music a bit like a YouTuber looks at releasing videos or a podcaster looks at releasing Great episodes. Comparison. 
Great comparison. Because you just need to do the next one and learn from it. It's a six-week campaign, then leave another two weeks, and then release another one, and then release another one. Literally and do had that for two fucking years. <laughs> I had this conversation with my friend the other day because he's, yeah. he's a DJ and producer. Great. And um, he was we were, we were just talking about how I, I can't remember the last time I myself listened to an album in full. Um, it's just, I used to listen to albums in full all the time, but now I like the idea of sort of uh, an artist releasing, as you've just said, one track and then six to eight weeks time, yep. another track and then another track. And then what would be, uh, you know, cause obviously people want new content all the time. So rather yep. than releasing an album, which you kind of push for six months, you could be releasing so many individual tracks and people just see it as just fresh new music, fresh new music. Totally. And, and that can be earning you money because if it lands on the right playlist on Spotify, with Old Sea Brigade, who I managed, he got very fortunate because one of his songs from his first EP, which was very, very acoustic, beautiful track called Love Brought Weight, when we started working together, it already had 500,000 plays. Oh, wow. Ish. And that's just because it had landed naturally with no support anywhere, no management, no label, no nothing. It had just landed on a Spotify playlist called something like your coffee house or something like that one of these big ones it was one of the early big spotify owned playlists and this was like 2015 so it was like a halcyon time to be a sort of moody male singer songwriter on spotify and it just stayed on there it's still on that freaking playlist and it's now had uh i could check but i think it's about 50 million streams it's had a baking lot of streams he has released a full album three eps a bunch of b-sides probably like 50 tracks since then. And we're now up to 1.3 million monthly listeners. And we're very, 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 very nearly at 100 million total streams. That's oh, insane man. numbers. That is insane numbers. I'm a bit of a data fiend as well. And I oh, love you go. numbers. Um, uh, I'll send you a screen wow. grab from his Spotify for artists. But that is, and don't get me wrong, we signed a record label quite soon, signed to a record label called Network, um, who really are exceptional at... Uh, organizing artist release plans to best cater for streaming services um which has its downfalls because if you focus on that you maybe don't think as much about gigs and you don't think as much about external pr until that time is right but that's the the point i was getting to was that because you need to release way more music and build up that following before record labels get to get into you, traditional media or are also coming later and later to the party yes the late night radio one will always play the newest, coolest stuff. But I'm talking things that have big impact. Again, to use the example of like a, a acoustic singer songwriter getting on radio too, you're not touching that until you have got a really big fan base and don't even go near it unless <laughs> you're selling several hundred tickets in every city in the UK because you're essentially wasting money trying to push to them. Um, there will obviously always be the um, exception to that rule where things just pop up and blow up. Um, but because those gatekeepers now t takes longer to get to, then what harm are you doing by just continually releasing music? And if you're doing that and communicating that to the people that are following you in a really authentic way, like, oh my God, I just hung out with this other artist and we wrote a song together and we released it, which is something that is a benefit of technology and pe more people being able to do things themselves. Because you can collaborate and go and write a song and just go, oh, I hung out with such and such a person today and we wrote a song and we're releasing it in two weeks. We love it. It's out. If you're an emerging artist, that might end up being your full project. That might, that might end up being the project that you blow up and become really famous for and you turn those two solo acts into a band. So there's that freedom to write over Zoom. Um, so many artists I know have benefited in some weird, twisted way 
from being able to write way more because they don't now need to travel to London to do a week of Literally. writing. Again, yeah. had this conversation <laughs> so many times. Um, it's great. It, it, I mean, I, I was talking to George Godfrey from Radio X a few weeks ago. And um, he was saying how Alfie Templeman has written two albums during lockdown, which is, which is just, I, I find it incredible. Um, and whilst a lot of artists don't like the idea of writing on Zoom, Mm. You know, certain it's artists have flourished. Yeah. yeah, certain artists have flourished. Flourished. Blah, 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 mouthful. Um, others haven't. But at the Total. same time, those that haven't, they've still been able to be as creative as you know throughout their own channels or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. Um, I want to move on to because uh, this is what I was saying at the start. There's so much I can touch about. I want to move <laughs> on to your podcast. Yes. No, no, absolutely. Um, it kind of ties into uh, music. Well, it does tie in uh, massively into music. Um, <laughs> So as the host of, uh, I've written it down and completely forgotten the name of your podcast. How, how did you so, manage that? <laughs> literally, how did I manage it? I don't know how I managed to forget <laughs> it. Um, so I didn't like fun that as a joke, by the way. Um, so as the host, well, host slash co-host, yes. um, you've interviewed some amazing people, uh, but being a manager yourself, I'm assuming that allowed you to extract certain oh, answers 100%. Or, or, you know, uh, approach it in a certain way. And... <laughs> Another question to that, yeah. did you learn a lot yourself from these other managers? Continually learn a lot. It's, you've uncovered my devious plan with the podcast. It's just a reason <laughs> to get to know more managers. Because management is a... Uh, well, there's loads of things about it. I used to work in radio and I really missed radio. And it was kind of and like... We'll and we'll talk about radio after the podcast pff, as that's well. That's a lifetime ago. Um, <laughs> but I really, I really enjoyed doing that in my early 20s. And I was living in London when I started the podcast and had a management and PR company with my friend Lindsay. Um, and I'd kind of missed creating stuff. I like creating stuff. And I think I'd come up with the name, How Did You Manage That? Long before, maybe two years before we even get the damn thing off the ground. <laughs> it is a great name. It's a good name. It's good. I'm, I'm proud of that name. Um, and it's kind of like knowing about podcasting. As you will know, like it's, there's such an opportunity to speak to a niche audience, which can be really large. Um, but I have been doing bits and bobs of work with the Music Managers Forum, which is an excellent sort of trade body for music managers in the UK. It's a huge and an amazing resource if you're a young manager um, looking to get into it. It's also good if you're a young artist looking for a manager. Worth checking out. I think it's like mmfuk.net or something like that. Just Google it. Um, and They're yeah, releasing just, the video with Arlo Parks tonight, aren't they? Correct. Yeah, sadly, they couldn't do their yearly glitzy London awards show, which is always a lot of fun um, because of pandemic. Uh, but instead, they invested some money in creating some really, really nice documentaries about uh, some really successful new managers and artists, which is exciting, including the breakthrough artist and manager of the year, Arlo Parks, and her manager, Ali Raymond, uh, who's a total legend. Um so yeah, I just kind of approached the MMF and said, look, I'd love to do a podcast with you guys. So already I was kind of setting the podcast up to be like, I know exactly who the audience are. This is for managers, but probably more so emerging managers. And uh, I'd sort of floated the idea about my friend Sophie, who who works in radio promotions and works in podcasting and knows bloody everybody in music. Um <laughs> And she was really into the idea, really loved it. Um, she knows a whole area of the music industry that I just didn't know at all. Huge breadth of contacts, huge breadth of knowledge. And I just thought we'd be a really good host for it. So, so we agreed to do it together over a couple of pints. Um, and yeah, we just kind of, the, the aim of it was always just to have nice, loose conversations with 
um, music managers are literally about how they do what they're doing. And we didn't want to just, no disrespect to them, but interview all the kind of old guard of music management who had their successes in the 80s and 90s and noughties and now just sit back on piles of money because that's no use to anyone. That's no use to <laughs> no, me. That's, you want you want to hear the stories from the Jamie Osborne, or Osborne saying, oh, nobody picked up the 1975, but I knew Matty was a star. You want those stories of like, and that's that's good. I mean, my dream for the podcast, it's funny I've been talking about this recently because we're looking into going, to our, going into our third series. Um, I would love to have the time and the resource to spend a lot more time in the podcast and really make an episode about a specific manager, but about a specific thing they did in their career and make it much more like nice. a short form documentary so that, say, we picked like up that. one pivotal moment and we hear from the artist and the manager and, and really craft edit it. But that's just because I'm a big fan of podcasts. And there's an amazing football podcast. It's a Spotify original called Giant. I don't know if you've heard it. It is absolutely what's amazing. it called again giant um and it the stories that they unearth it's everything from like incredible stories of non-league football to the story of when hearts were taken over by this lithuanian millionaire heart of middleton football club in scotland were taken over by a Lithu lithuanian millionaire and it all went terribly wrong and it's just really rich incredible audio um documentary making i would love to turn um uh, how did you manage that into that? But it's that is not what it is. Um, we would need significant investment. We'd need to hire like two producers, and we're not quite there yet. Um, but I've forgotten entirely the question. But the, yeah, the, I mean, the reason for doing it was I have learned so much from in before I started the podcast. The best management lessons I I learned from other managers, hands down. And really, it was a simple premise to be like, is there a standout episode wider. for you? Uh, I think the first one of the season we did last year with uh, Ben Mortimer, who manages uh, Giolipa and works with Dermot Kennedy and Ellie Goulding and some really, really high-profile acts, um, because we talked specifically in that ep episode, it was quite near the start of the first lockdown, and Giolipa was the first artist to really launch an album campaign in COVID times, and they had to pivot so quickly. They didn't push the album back, they just like did an online show and and at, at that level and she was appearing on like Saturday Night Live was it Saturday Night Live or one of the big American talk shows but over Zoom and she was really leading the line to do that so hearing the stories of how they were being reactive almost in the moment I found was incredible but yeah and we did another uh, episode with Sophie Bloggs who's an amazing manager at YMU uh, who works with loads of incredible electronic artists and that was a whole different world because she's worked with like DJs and producers but she also manages a musical career of people just do nothing which was the BBC t <laughs> BBC oh, 3 wow, comedy yeah, show yeah, Corrupt FM, yeah. yeah so that's a totally <laughs> different perspective on the world um, and then the one we did with uh, Arlo Parks manager Ali Raymond that I mentioned uh, that was our last episode we did actually um about the fact that he'd worked with her since she was like 15. And I guess we did that interview at the tail end of last year. Basically looking back, I would say she was one of the biggest artists breaking out of last year. And to be able to get from the horse's mouth what that felt like for someone he'd believed in for so long. And it finally the world connected and she's doing collabs with Phoebe Bridgers and releasing her debut album and all those different things. It was like, it was so nice to get that insight into that story. Um, and I think so as, happy for both of them. 
I think as well, music has been uh, more prominent. Obviously, it's been in yeah. our lives for so long, but it's been more prominent than ever before because mm. people have used it as uh, as an escape uh, more than ever. So many people are working at home, working for sure, home, yeah, and therefore can just whack on headphones. You know, people are going out for walks with me. You know, I, I feel like music now is being listened to more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just interesting to hear what you've got to say about these different managers, how they've had to persevere. And, you know, there's been no, there's no rule book on how to release music during a lockdown, a pandemic, you know, and yeah. how people are going to respond to it. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's just looking for opportunities. And that's the thing with music management, which I find so fascinating about it, because every manager, that I've spoken to for the podcast or that I know takes huge risks with their own career, with their own reputation, with with their own life, with their own relationships, like in their personal life, because it's an all-consuming job. It is the weirdest job. And it's there's so much of it is toxic because you're 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 chasing an almost impossible dream. And I, I can't remember who it was, but one very successful manager once told me that it's an awful treadmill definitely for your mental health because you are always aiming for some goal that is going to continually get further and further away no matter how famous you get if you're managing Elton John he's still wanting to release music so well maybe he's retired now maybe bad example but if you're managing someone ludicrously successful Coldplay for example they're not just going to stop making music once they're successful they go right now what how do we become as important as the Beatles yeah and it, it never fucking ends and I think you can look at that on the macro level as well but just and, and also just to pick it. up on the mental health aspect, yeah. I know it's, it can be something we can talk about for ages, sure. but just quickly, and um, for a manager, they're obviously dealing with their own mental health. And I imagine the mental health of either the musician or the band they're managing as well. Yeah. So it must be it must be incredibly overwhelming for a manager. I think it's we we ask every manager we speak to on the podcast about that as a point of principle because it's not discussed as much. Thankfully, it's discussed a lot more now with artists. Um it's incredibly important. But with the manager, it's just as much pressure, if not more. Um, and I think, again, it comes back to how I started when we were talking about management. Basically, you're forming a relationship with someone, a really close bond, and that's more important than knowledge of publishing contracts or X, Y, and Z because you need to be each other's support network. And nobody else, no, no matter, nobody else in your life will be able to empathize with the situations and the decisions you're making on a daily basis the bigger you get as an artist um because it's terrifying being an artist is the biggest juxtaposition in the planet because you both have to be especially nowadays especially with streaming especially with social media you have to be the most optimistic person in the planet and believe in yourself more than anyone else does but at the exact same time you have to be hyper realistic about what you're going to do, about how many tickets you sell, about where you are. And those two things don't meld together. So it's a total juxtaposition for both management and artist. You know, you have to totally dream, but you also have to be brutally realistic with the cold, hard finances. Is, is, there, is there such thing as an overnight success? I mean, you hear people talk about it, and obviously and there's that idea of, well, they're an overnight success to you, but they've been grafting for fucking I, years. But do you think there there are any artists? You don't have to name them at all. I'm not looking for that. But do you think in the past there have been musicians who have just got lucky overnight? Mm. I would, in one hand, and from my perspective, I would look at Lewis Capaldi as an overnight success. But I say I use the term overnight for it took about four years 
to get everybody <laughs> yeah, right. famous because that's a very, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a really short window of time and that was accelerated by his personality and once he got a little foot at the table you know started getting interviews in daytime radio one i remember hearing one on scott mills years back and he would have been an early artist and he just ran away with it. He was so funny. He didn't give him a sec. I remember Van McCann from Catfish and the Bottlemen when they were first allowed on the Radio 1 Breakfast show back when uh, Nick Grimshaw was a presenter. And he basically came in for like a 10-minute interview probably with the people from his label and, oh, you'll talk in this little slot. And he just charmed the life out of Grimmy. And he ended up doing the next hour and a half of the radio show with him. He just wouldn't leave. <laughs> and instantly, you're like, that's a, that's a Liam Gallagher move. That's a, and suddenly everything started blowing up for them because people just see them in a different respect. And then every other radio show is like, oh, let's, let, let's do the whole show or whatever. And it's, it was the same. You could see that moment happening um, with Lewis Capaldi when he went from being famous and doing really well to huge. And what was it? It was, that, it was some joke about money. Uh, and he came on stage at Big Weekend and Scott and Chris from Radio 1 were like chucking fake money over him. And it just became this, it became a meme and it became a joke. And then I think he went from like everybody in music knowing who he was or people who are obsessed with new music to the general public went, what the heck is this? People that don't sit and obsess over musicians' careers. Um, and I think that, I'll say that was an overnight success, but that overnight really means four or five years from starting out. Or maybe, maybe less than that, maybe, maybe three or something, but that's a, that's a quick win. <laughs> so... Yeah, I don't know. Unless you are even even like huge American stars that seem to appear out of nowhere, they've been like a Disney kid or something. Like, yeah, there's everybody's true. got a journey from somewhere, and I I, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, there's probably can. loads of examples. There's, there's uh, go there's, for it. There's what, the one um, the I can't remember. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Yes, the, the driver's license. Yeah, she was, was she not a Disney kid? Yeah, she was. She was. Yeah. Uh, um, she was in the High School Musical TV series, I think, yeah. or the movie, one or the other. Yeah, yeah, um, you go. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a, a god. You could talk about that forever as well, and how totally. Uh, I mean, it's amazing, uh, but again, every route is every route is so unique. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, most I'll most do, people have been in other bands and all that shit as well. Sorry. Now I was just going to uh, quickly, because uh, obviously it was mm. a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I say a long time ago, but I want to just quickly talk about Radio One. Sure. Um, yeah. Obviously, you were a huge supporter of new music. Um, that must have felt great because clearly, you I mean, it's obvious you're so passionate about music and new music. It must have been great uh, being someone who, you know, was, was, was broadcasting this fresh music on the biggest station in, in the land. Oh, it was amazing. It was a to total buzz. And I am forever grateful for the opportunities I got to do that, for the people that gave, gave me a shot and let me do that. Um, and I do... You know, I speak to a lot of people and I work now with a lot of new talent and young people who want to, who aspire to do that. And I, previously for the last three years, I was working for the BBC as a producer, working for Radio 1, working for BBC Sounds, working for BBC Three and BBC Scotland. Um, mostly is, there a, working, is there a BBC that you have, like part of the BBC you haven't worked for? Never worked for Radio 4. Never had the call from Radio <laughs> 4. I'll give you that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, guys. Uh, I now have left BBC and I now work for, for Channel 4. But... Um, yeah, I it was an amazing opportunity to, to get to do that. And I was pretty young. I was 22 when I got when I got that. Wow. And wow. I, it's totally mad. And I, I mean on paper it looks like the the sort of clear path. Like I was really lucky to get to go to university, um, where I did student radio and then I met loads of people from the BBC and then I left uni 
And then me and some friends started a little project in Glasgow, which was a live music night. But we also filmed, it was a YouTube channel before YouTube was massive. It was like, it was just the wrong time. If I'd started that YouTube channel five years later, it would be SPTV levels (laughs) of like cultural influence. But it was just too early. We wasted loads of money. We were all totally drunk. Um, But we did really cool sessions. And it was really different for the time. And because I was doing that and doing gig nights and working full time in a restaurant, those contacts I'd made through student radio and been lucky enough to, to get to know a producer and got to know a few radio presenters. They then saw what I was doing and it was like, oh, we need a bit of this. And then that led to me getting to demo. And at the right time, the presenter who had been doing it was was retiring. And then I, then I got the call and I got super lucky. And I, yeah, I think I definitely freaked out because I was pretty young, but it was, it was a dream gig. Um, and I'd, you must I'd be make, one of the one. Of, you must be like on the younger side of any uh, like new Radio One presenter. Yeah, sure. I think now there's been quite a few who've gone, but maybe as a full time. Yeah, maybe it was definitely quite early, and I was definitely pretty pretty raw and pretty uh, all over the place. Put it that way. <laughs> but I loved it, and I think. But I was clear from the start that my intention was not to go to daytime radio or end up being a Saturday night talk show host. Like it was always about the music, and I remember very early on meeting the big bosses and they were sort of laying out scenarios of oh if you do this you do that you'll get to this stage or whatever and i was like nah, i'm just gonna be in nice and sleazies in glasgow at three in the morning hanging out with djs <laughs> what i do you know, like, that was just my world and that's why it was halfway through working for radio one that i ended up falling into music management and i was like oh this is more sustainable this is because as a presenter um doing the radio stuff you know i was freelance but making my money from djing and thinking of other things and I was doing voiceover work and I think in that period I was always you, you know you have to treat yourself like a band you've got to treat yourself mm. like a campaign and all that sort of stuff so I was kind of let I was always happier kind of behind the scenes and, and, and pulling the levers and then when I ended up doing that with band management and I, I did that as a full-time job for three years traveling traveling the world and getting to do some remarkable things with Prides, like stand inside the stage when they played in the John and Peel stage at Glastonbury the week before their debut album came out on Island Records. Like that's something that I could, I, I'll never forget with three of my best friends. It was incredible. Um, and the, But I only got to that position because I'd met all these people at Radio 1 and, 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 and all that stuff. And then I turned that into a business, doing PR work and managing some other artists. And yeah, I've kind of forgotten the train of thought, but... <laughs> Getting to, <laughs> no, get, getting to no. do that at the start. It all, one thing led to another and it always has in the different jobs I've had. But doing that job for four years in Radio 1 was an absolute dream. But I feel like it ended because they decided to scrap the show. And already I was into music management fully. And now I look back on it and go, that was the perfect length of time to do that because I didn't have aspirations to go and just present anything because it was always about music. Um, and then I got into management and then I got more into the kind of content and producing things and making things happen and production um, and then I ended up going back to the BBC and did that for a bunch of years and managed to get a TV show commissioned in Scotland I got two podcasts commissioned with BBC Sounds and 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 then you're really learning where things start and you've how done so much man form. honestly you've done so much <laughs> I've like, been lucky man very lucky well I mean how I look at luck I think it's a uh, it's um, I can't remember who said it but you know preparation meets opportunity obviously mm. you, you've you're very good at what you do and your skills are highly applicable to different fields within media. Um, so I just want to quickly uh, talk about your new position at Channel 4. Yes. We won't go too, too much into it. So you're a digital dev producer, which I imagine is, well, in fact, I can't even imagine. What, what does 
you know, the basics entail. What can you tell us about what you do? So, uh, still working it out myself. Uh, I am the first ever development produ- development producer has ever been a Channel Four, which is really exciting. Yeah, um, sure. because Channel Four, for its tele programming, works with uh, exclusively with independent production companies. So they make it, and Channel Four really just commissions it. They don't make anything in the house. Um, right. But that is all changing with the new department that I'm part of, Four Studio, which creates. Uh, digital content so we've got a whole production team that we're growing uh, and it's my job to really the simplest way to describe it <laughs> so have you ever seen the monkey tennis sketch of alan partridge uh, i think i have yeah <laughs> okay so he basically just pitches lots and lots of terrible ideas and um, desperately trying to get a new show so it's a little bit like that for that old reference <laughs> But really, what it is, is coming up with uh, Channel 4, obviously, have massive digital audiences, sort of 2 million on Facebook, 1.5 million on, on YouTube, huge growing audiences on Snapchat. Um, and my job is to come up with formats that are going to work for that audience, essentially. So, you know, we're looking at the younger end of the audience, 18 to 35-year-olds, and basically just coming up with web series that could be about anything. It could be about factual documentaries, true stories. It could be content about gaming. It could be content about um, oh, anything, human interest stories, foods, property, whatever, um, based on the data that we get from all the Channel 4 telly program content that we put out on digital. Right. It's really coming up with okay. ideas. So what that entails is, a mad world of just a lot of conversations to the team with ideas they might have and trying to take it from a kernel of an idea you might say to me oh i've got this great idea to do a cooking show but it's involving comedians and they've got to do it in the wilderness or whatever and i'm like okay cool that's (laughs) a that's a good thought but how the hell are we going to make that and so then my job is to really craft that idea and think of what are the format points if we're if we're trying to think of a game show here like what are the format points? What are the things that happen? I mean, the most successful web series in that kind of entertainment funny way is Hot Ones um, from Complex. You know, it's a really simple premise. That's eat 10 wings, one question, one wing, one question. Like, it's genius. But I bet it didn't start out like that. I bet it was like, we want to do celeb interviews with with hot sauce. Okay, what are we going to do? And then they add the little format points and 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 the final dab and all that stuff and you're like that's... And I bet that idea is now worth a lot of money. Oh my god! I mean every I mean every Hollywood star has gone on it. Every video has got twenty million on it, and there's a lot of money involved. And as you as you know, like get once the views click up with advertising, that's massive. So you know it's it's that kind of world of online content that isn't connected to tele shows. Um, although in saying that, I just finished my first project, which was a digital spin-off show to the incredible Russell T. Davis drama It's a Sin. Um and we created a show which myself and an independent production company came up with called After Hours. Um, it was presented by a brilliant new presenter called Kima Bob, who's hilarious. Uh, and we got all of the main cast on it and we did five episodes and I just found out today it's had a decent number of views on all four. Nice. Which is great. That's awesome. Mate, I I honestly I just I'm I'm in awe of what you do because you've got such you've got such a, a, an incredible talent of being able to do fucking everything within the media world. <laughs> well, let's just say I've and, not and, I've not succeeded at a lot of those things. <laughs> well, you, you know, at the same time, you're still very 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 young. I mean, I would say I would say you're very young. Um, and so wow, I mean, I've no man. idea where where where, where <laughs> I mean, your trajectory is just like incredible, isn't it? Um, 
uh, Ali, thank you very much for your time. I'm going to ask you one more question, yes. which I ask all of my guests. Um, and that is, if I gave you a blank canvas, what would you paint on it and why? Oh my God, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about an, a blank, posting a photo of a blank Google Doc earlier on, because that's what I start most of my days with. <laughs> oh, we want to <laughs> nice. make an idea about cooking and I'll just look at a blank Google Doc for ages. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are we going to do? <laughs> um, so a blank canvas, what am I putting on it? Um, I, that is an excellent question. I have no answer. I feel like because I've been in my back room for a year, um, it's just going to be the site which is in front of me, which is a laptop propped up <laughs> in a box with a microphone next to it. Um, but that's really dull and I'm very, very bad at art. So I would probably write lots of positive statements on it. I'd just scroll things nice. like, yes, to hug your friends, <laughs> big positive live, laugh, love statements like that because I just want to <laughs> go to the pub with my mates, Christ. And I want to go to Redding and Leeds. I watched a trailer for Reading and Leeds 2021 today, which I hope does. They've announced it's going to go ahead and I shed a tiny tear. I got really emotional watching it. it Imagine the brilliant. scenes. Imagine oh, the scenes. That's what I'd paint. I'd paint a pint of warm carling. So I'd, <laughs> <laughs> so I'd put uh, Ali, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank I really you for having me. Lovely to chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Blank Canvas. You can follow us on Instagram at a blank canvas pod, or you can like us on Facebook forward slash a blank canvas pod. If you want to contact us for any reason, it's hello at a blank canvas pod.com or visit our website, a blank canvas pod.com. <laughs>